as I think about life, and I examine people, and I love the people watch and how they do things. You know, there's a, there's a special category of people who I've observed. They have this ability to be laser-focused on any given day and whatever they're doing. They're able to just block out and ignore distractions and stay focused on a task. And I'm just curious, does that describe any of you? Like, are you able to do that? Wow, I'm so glad. So that means the rest of you, you're like me, like focusing is difficult and it takes very little to distract you. Uh, so like decades ago, when I was a child, they diagnosed me. It was actually called like hyperactive disorder or hyperkinetic and you know, now it's attention deficit hyperactive dis- disorder, ADHD. Uh, they gave me Ritalin and a Pez dispenser. Like I was taking that all the time and I can't count how many times my mother would say to me, Chad, settle down, you are spinning like a top. And like she would always, that was her saying. And in fact, one of the reasons that I actually like working out of the Starbucks at 21st and Greenwich or Greenwich, for those of you who refuse to cave to Kansas pressure to mispronounce certain words like El Dorado or the fact that the food chain Spangles called the Greek sandwich the gyro. In fact, during their big ad campaign a few years ago promoting the gyro, I actually messaged the management and said, please stop dumbing down our city by mispronouncing this word. Okay, see, I got distracted there. Okay, so as I was saying, I prefer to work out of the Starbucks because it fixes me to a two-foot by four-foot section of table with constant white noise in the background, whereas if I'm at the quiet, working from the quiet of my home, if I'm not super disciplined, like I can step away from my uh, laptop to go to the Keurig to make up a cup of coffee, and I'll see some dishes on the counter and go like, oh, I should put those in the dishwater, uh, dish, dishwasher. That's like, you know, two or three minutes, make my wife happy. And then after doing that task, I can be walking back to my office. I have to pass our bedroom, and I look and see the bed. I'm like, oh, it's been like two or three weeks since we washed the sheets. So, like, I could just strip it really quick and, like, throw them in the wash and uh, whatever. So that way, like, I'm, I'm being, like, double effective, you know, because I'm getting stuff at home done and, and working. And then I go and then finally I get back to my desk and I sit and I go, you know, my desk is a little dusty. You know, I work better in a clean work environment. Like, so maybe if I swiffer it and before I know it, like I can kill like a half hour of my day, like just all, without even thinking about it. Uh, there's another new lifer. She was taking a class last fall and actually she also liked to come and work out of the Starbucks, but we both struggle with ADD. So uh, we made a pact that if uh, one of the other walks in, and the other is there working or studying that we can say hello to one another, but that's it. Uh, otherwise, it's just like we're done for. So like the last time she came in, she walked in and uh, she had to walk past my table to order her coffee. And she said, hey, Chad. And I go, hey, okay, go away. And I, like, like that was it. And, uh, but we ADDers, we're not alone, okay. Uh, just Google distraction ep- epidemic. Because there's fascinating, concerning research about the distraction levels, especially in our culture and how it's taking its toll. Uh, One study was on people multitasking at work compared to focusing on just one task. And those who multitasked saw a 10-point fall in their IQ, which has doubled the impact of since we have multiple generations in the room, smoking a still illegal substance in Kansas uh, uh, while working. Another study showed that uh, receiving eight texts an hour lowers our focus on task by 30%. According to a Harvard study, the average person's mind wanders 47% of the time. So in other words, half the time that you're doing one thing, you're thinking about someone else. 
And here's another, uh, another one. Uh, if you're working with less than five hours of sleep per night, uh, your productivity and your focus is the same as someone with a mild hangover, which is why all of our parents with young babies look like they're hungover every Sunday. Uh, and, and here's another important one. If you're in a flow state of working and you're suddenly interrupted, it takes at least 23 minutes or more to get back to the same level of productivity and focus. And besides productivity and focus, uh, productivity issues, the data is clear that the level of distractions in our life is adding to the levels of stress, depression, and anxiety. And here's the reason that we're talking about this this morning. Because we've been spending the past several weeks about living with an overarching, guiding, God-given vision for our lives. And we've been saying that our tendency is to focus on where we are right now in life, trying to enjoy the ride as much as possible. Maximum pleasure, minimal discomfort, but that it's crucial that we pause long enough to ask, where is my life actually going? Where do I want my life to end up? When my productive career years are over or after I've raised my children, what do I want to look back on when I look back on my life? And, and this deep dive into Nehemiah, it's been so helpful because life is complicated and we are constantly bombarded with distractions. And before you know it, your teens are over and you can never get them back. Your 20s over. Your 20s are over and you can never get them back. There are just no do-overs. Your 30s and your 40s. And then for those of you, you raise kids and your kids leave home. And each passing decade, it just seems to pick up speed like somebody's pushing on the accelerator. Especially once you hit 50 and you begin looking back going, wow, where did the time go? And we've all got a vision for our lives. We've got a vision for how we want to end up financially a vision for a relationship, a vision for your family. If you're a parent, you have a vision for your children. And in this series, we've talked about, for those of us who are Christians, that part of being a Christian means that we are to be directly involved in inspiring and leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ and leading others into the, to follow Jesus. And I've been praying for our church, and I've been praying for each of you that God would begin to help you and I to see people the way he sees them, and the way God sees them, and to burden you with the things that burden him, that those things would burden you with a clear picture, and he would burden you with a clear picture in some area of your day-to-day life, and to show you what he wants to do in and through you to impact the lives of others. But anytime you commit to living your life for something bigger, you are at high risk of getting distracted and even derailed. In fact, some of you, you you've got some pain and regrets as you look back on your life, like I sort of knew where I was headed, But then this person or then this opportunity came along and I got distracted and here I am and I'm just not even close to where I thought I wanted to go. Or you may be listening to me and you're not even sure that you're sure about Jesus or the church, but you still have a mental image of where you want to be down the road. So this is relevant for every single one of us because we all battle distractions. And this morning we're going to again look at Nehemiah. We've been tracing Nehemiah through this history. He was a great leader. He, uh, through incredible circumstances, he's able to go to Jerusalem, inspire a previously apathetic group of people, thousands to regain a sense of dignity and a sense of national identity and protection from the surrounding areas by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But the people who lived around did not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt or the walls because it would be a threat to their power and their revenue streams. So all through the book of Nehemiah, the enemies worked relentlessly to stop the rebuilding of this wall. Well, finally they realize that they can't stop the rebuilding, stop the workers or the work, 
but they finally decide if we can take out the leader and get him off task, the whole project will shut down. So in Nehemiah 6, they make three attempts to distract him. And as we'll see, each of these has great relevance to our lives. Because here's the principle. The things that we are distracted to are almost never as important as the things that we're distracted from, right? So one of the first major distractions is opportunity. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. When word came to Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the door in the gates, Samballot and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in, in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So let's get the picture. He's about to finish the wall. They send this letter to Nehemiah saying, Nehemiah, look, you know, we got a rough start. We've not been hanging out. We've not been best friends, but let's call a truth, truce. Let's get together over a good Guinness, good wine. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. And this is the crux of this whole passage right here. He says in verse 3, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Here's the same verse, but with a little more literal translation. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. So I'd like to read this out loud together. Even you introverts, you can do this. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. One more time. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. See, Nehemiah realized that what he was focused on in his life was a God thing. And this opportunity to meet was simply that, an opportunity, which one, later on he found out wasn't even really a good opportunity. And he said, look, I don't have time for a meeting. I'm, I'm about a great work. I'm doing a great work. I don't have time to come down. Now, every day of your life, every day of your life in the areas that matter most, we are offered opportunities, good opportunities. Uh, entertainment opportunities, dates, restaurants, television, movies, Facebook, Insta, TikTok, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, electronics, limited time offer, buy now, Cox Cable, Dish, AT&T, hobbies, chores, whatever. There's just so many options and so much entertainment coming at us every day. And each one of those things takes a little piece of time and another little piece of time and another little piece of time. And many of these are good things, but you know what? They become distractions. How many of you have ever just decided to just take a peek at Facebook or Insta and TikTok or Twitter thinking, you know what, I'm I'm just going to take a look. And you scroll, and you scroll, and you read, and you like, and you care, and you comment, and you scroll, and you watch some reels, and the next thing you know, a half hour is gone. Like, you don't even know where it went. And you've even thought, I kind of wish I had that time back. Like, I was going to go to bed and go to sleep this time, and oh, now, look, the time's gone. Or you're dealing with career distractions. I mean, you've got a family, but at the same time, you've got a job. You don't intend to stay in the same position your whole life. So you're working towards, you're hoping for promotions and raises. But every time you move up, it carves out just a little more of your time a little more time away from the things and the people that are really important to you. Uh, Maybe you're offered the opportunity to travel more, or maybe you're a parent, and your vision was to have more time with your family, but all of a sudden, you're given this attractive opportunity to make more money for for your family, but it means that you're going to have more time away from your home. 
Maybe you're retired and you had a picture of serving and giving more to the local church for the next generation of church leaders, but you have an opportunity to go here or go there or buy this or catch up on 40 years of honeydew list. And the problem is if, is if we're not discerning, good opportunities can rob us of the joy of seeing something greater come to fruition. So our biggest challenge as individuals is to learn not to discern between bad things and good things but because that's easy. It's to learn, it's a more difficult task to discern between the good thing and the best thing. Between learning to ask this question, what do I want now and what do I want most in my life, in who God has called me to be? Because if you're not careful, you get years down the road and you look back and you wonder, why did I not end up where I wanted or where I believe that God was leading me to go and accomplish? And it's rarely because of tragedy. It's usually just because there were so many opportunities that came our way that we took advantage of and that just nickeled and dimed our time and it distracted us from the main thing. Uh, my wife and I have close friends in Illinois, uh, both extremely smart people from Ivy League schools. I don't know why they hung out with us, but uh, he was successful in the medical field. She was wildly successful in the field of law. Uh, he's been published in numerous medical journals. She was a nationally sought-after attorney. And around the time she was pregnant with their first child, he was offered a prestigious uh, lead research position at Cornell University. She was being pursued uh, by national firms, some of the biggest law firms in the country. But they had a vision for what they wanted their family to look like. They knew that accepting these positions would mean a great deal of travel and very long days. And this was not the vision that they had for their family. So instead, he accepted a 40-hour week uh, position as a pathologist, and you know what she did? She quit. She gave up a potentially seven-figure salary as a successful attorney to be a stay-at-home mom. And many of their peers told them they were nuts. They were being often offered positions that people worked their whole lives to achieve, and in their late 20s and early 30s. And like, who does that? They did. And they stuck with it. They stuck with the vision that they have for their family. Now they get this amazing family and relationship dynamic. But now, years later, many of those same people who told them they were nuts, they got big paychecks in the end, but their marriages were ruined or destroyed. For some of them, they made tons of money, but their adult children won't speak to them anymore. And that's the danger of opportunities. They may be really good opportunities, but if they distract us from the things that God wants most to happen in our lives and relationships, they are, in fact, not good opportunities. It's like it takes a discerning person to say no to good opportunities, and that's what we need to get in the habit of saying no. And we all know, especially with the children in the room today, like what's one of the first words they learn? No. And then we try to teach them to not say that so much, but then as adults, like maybe we need to say it more. So we're going to practice it right now. Just say no with me. No. Let's do it one more time. No. Yes, you guys are so good. So we got to get in the habit of that. Say no. I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Hopefully some of the kids are not going to try that later today. Hey, come in the room. No, I'm doing a great work. So, uh, well, the pastor said, uh, for those of you that are single adults, you, you've got a picture in your mind of your future and you've got all these distractions. You just need to roll off your tongue. No. No, thank you. I'm doing a great work I can, and I cannot come down. Maybe there's nothing wrong with it. But I have a vision for what could and should be in my life and I'm not going to deviate for something good in the moment 
because I'm headed for something great in the long run. I'm not, I'm doing a great work. I'm not coming down. For those of you that are married, some of you wives, I get it. You look at us, you go, he's a piece of work. You know, I, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. I mean, men and wives, or husbands and wives, even, even during those times, you don't want to be in the same state with each other, let alone the same house. You need to say, no, we're, we're doing a great work, our marriage. We're doing a great work. I cannot come down. For those of us who are parents, we can be so easily distracted. We need to be able to look at our children and go, no, I'm, I am called to a great work. I cannot come down. Nehemiah sent the message back, said, no, I don't have time for a meeting. So they came up with a plan B. And the second distraction that we'll eventually face actually is accusations. Verse 5, then the fifth time, Samballot sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter because Samballot wanted people to read this letter. So he just conveniently forgot to seal it. He sends it through three or four couriers over a few hundred miles of, of territory, knowing that everybody along the way was going to read this letter and then talk to everyone else about it. The letter said, Dear Nehemiah, it is reported among the nations, that is, it's everywhere, Nehemiah, and Geshem says it's true, and you know Geshem, he can be trusted, that you and the Jews are plotting a revolt against who? Persia. And therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and even have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. They say, Nehemiah, we know what you're really up to. You're not building the wall for some heritage or for, for God's sake. Uh, we know what you're really up to. Uh, your motive is to become king. And if the word gets back to Persia, the king is going to have your head. Now imagine, here's Nehemiah. He's, he sacrificed his role in the palace. He was close to the king. He's come to this God-forsaken place. He's put in blood, sweat, and tears. And, 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 and as we saw last week, he's given up incredible financial opportunity. He's made great sacrifice. And if anyone has proven his motives are pure, it's Nehemiah. So imagine what he feels. Imagine what he feels like when he reads an unsealed letter that's, that's been handled by however many people. In that time, that was essentially the, the equivalent of posting publicly online today. Hey, everybody knows that you're in this for your own good. Look what his response is, and this is just great. I sent him this reply. Whatever. <laughs> essentially. The Hebrew is. Uh, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed to God, now strengthen my hands. See, listen, when you embrace a vision for what God wants to do in and through you, it sets you up for false accusations. And here's why. Because when people see you acting strangely, saying no to good opportunities, and when your values conflict and contrast with the values of this world, they're not going to ascribe pure motives to you. Not to your strange actions. Because we live in a world that's accustomed to not letting good opportunities pass us by. And anybody, you know, that would let him or let her go by, or anybody that would pass up that opportunity, like, that's not normal. Anybody that wouldn't take that raise or make that move or agree to be transferred, like, did you hear how much he could have made like, who does that? That's just weird. I mean, he could have traveled. She could have moved up. Like, something's off. You choose to not watch certain shows. You choose to establish boundaries with your kids. It's like, oh, they're so self-righteous. They just think they're better than everyone else. 
or you prioritize serving and generosity, you know, they just want people's approval. So that's why they do so much for others or for their church. You know, see, the clearer you are, the more focused you are on your vision of saying no to opportunities. It sets you up, more than sets you up for false accusations. If you're a teenager or a young person and one of your visions is to save the gift of sex until you're married, your peers, they don't go, wow, way to go. I mean, that's just awesome. No, they're going, what? Like, who, who does that? Or, you know, the reason you're waiting is because you don't have any opportunities to not wait, or you're just chicken. And all of a sudden, a teenager finds him or herself ascribed with the very thing that is most untrue about them. I remember after going all in with Jesus at 19, uh, we were out to sea. I was, on the, uh, I was with my flight deck crew. We were waiting for some fighters to return. Uh, we were sitting around in our gear. And next to me, one of my crew, he was kind of flipping through. I'll just say it was a special magazine. And he looked over me, and he held the center part open to my face. And he's like, hey, Pickering, check it out. And I glanced over to see what he was showing me. I got up. Oh. And I looked away. I turned my head back. And he said, I said, hey, no thanks. He's like, come on, Pickering. Check it out. I go, bro, I'm good. There's a brief pause, and the next thing I know, two of my crewmates tackled me, pinned me to the floor on my back with me facing up, with my buddy standing over me. Pickering, look at it. You know you want to look at it. And we honestly, we just ended up laughing at a full-on wrestling match because we were 19, right? So, but see, the dynamic of our relationship had changed because after I became a Christian, I started saying no to a lot of things that previously I, just like them, had said yes to. And a lot of the guys attributed less than positive motives or value to that. And they made fun of me, and I could take it. But we live in a world as people, like, they look at you like, who wouldn't take that raise? Who wouldn't look at that? Who wouldn't watch that? Who wouldn't accept that promotion? You just don't, you don't have what it takes to cut it. You're just afraid. And you throw out this family value stuff, you're just afraid. And if you have convictions, and if you hold firm, people will ascribe to you all kinds of weird things. And if we're not careful, we'll let our ego and our self-defenses kick in, and we naturally want to spend time and energy defending ourselves. We start sending messages and texts and emails and social media posts and setting up meetings. To uh, All of a sudden, we're just expending tons of energy to make sure that everybody is thinking right about us instead of focusing on the vision of what God wants us to do. Or the anger of it, that becomes the focus. But Nehemiah said, look, I'm not going to let this stuff bother me. And I'm going to waste my time defending myself. He said, I'm going to stay on task. And he hung in there. Because the best way to silence your critics is to see your vision through to the end. And then when your vision becomes a reality, all of your actions and strange decisions, when they produce results, the people in their hearts, they envy you. And if they're humble, they come to you with a pen and paper and go, we want what you have. Tell us how you did it. The third thing that happened was they tried to scare him to death. And fear is the other distraction that we will all face. Verse 10, one day when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, I'm going to go, Delilah, sorry, uh, distraction, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in his home, we don't know why he was shut in, he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let's close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. 
So he gets into Nehemiah's house, Nehemiah gets to his house, he shuts the door, he says, bro, I'm so glad you made it. He's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? He says, listen, since you wouldn't go meet them, they're sending an assassin. Your only hope is to flee to the temple, close the doors, clean to the altar for safety. Now here's the deal. Nehemiah wasn't allowed in the temple. Only priests were allowed in the, the inner part of the temple. Uh, but there was this law that said if you accidentally killed someone and they had their big brother was coming to find you to avenge him and you knew, that, knew there wouldn't be time for a trial because as soon as he found you, he was taking you out. You could flee to the temple, go inside and cling to the altar and, and plead for asylum. And the priest would say, hey, he's here and he's going to stay here. He's going to stay here safe until we have a trial. But if you went to the temple and you didn't meet the criteria, you completely discredited yourself, discredited yourself, discredited yourself. And in certain times of Israel's history, you could be killed for doing that. So this guy is trying to scare Nehemiah into breaking God's law. And this is great. Verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. This is so great. Here's a man who realized that he was on a mission from God. He's thinking, okay, so they send an assassin to kill me. Should a man like me, who's been tasked with such an important, great work, with a responsibility like this for such an incredible thing, should a person in that situation, is what he's saying, should I run? And don't miss this. What he's saying is, should I allow fear of the unknown from pursuing what I do know? Should I allow the fear of what might be keep me from pursuing what should be and ought to be? And if the assassin comes, let him come. But I'm not going to break God's law because somebody might come to kill me. I'm not going to run away and allow fear to divert me from the vision that God has put in my heart. And look what happens. I realize that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name and discredit me. The whole thing's a plot, but he saw through it. Now, this is important, because anytime you have a vision for what God wants to do in and through your life, there will always be an element of anxiety and fear, because it will always involve unknown and the unpredictable. And fear is a major distraction, because we get... Drowning in the what-ifs. What if I pass up this opportunity and it never comes my way again? What if I pass up on this person, this guy, this gal, and I don't get another opportunity? What if I pass on this job or this offer, this deal? What if? Or I, I know I need to say no, but what if it costs me? I know, what God, I know God wants me to initiate a relationship or a conversation with this person, but what if they reject me? I know if I take this opportunity, it will hurt time with my family, but what if I, another opportunity like this never comes again? Fear. What if I fail? Fear. What if I get other people excited, but I don't have what it takes? Fear. I sense God is calling to, for me to give financially or to make a difference, but what if I want something down the road and there isn't enough for me? Fear. And if we're not careful, we lose sight of the vision of what God wants to do in and through us in our lives. And the tragedy is that we let what might be distract us from what could be and should be in our lives. And Nehemiah lived in a time and a culture where an assassination plot was likely. Any of us would feel some fear, but Nehemiah's response was to look, say, look, God 
God has put me in this position. Look at the opportunity I have to make a difference. So in light of that, should a man like me, who's been given a great opportunity by God, back out in fear? Nehemiah, he provides this powerful example because he said, God gave me a vision for my life, so I'm going to say no to a lot of good opportunities. And I don't care what people say about me. And yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, but I'm not going to allow fear of what might be to pull me away from what I know should be in my life and in Jerusalem. So I'm going to ask this question and then we're done. What are the distractions that you're dealing with in your life right now? One thing we all share in common is good distractions from the great things that God wants to do in our life. And the second question is, what are you going to do about it? Because only you can control that. Do you realize that hanging on to that distraction could just reroute or even destroy what God wants to do in and through you in the short and the long term? Are you holding on to both worlds somehow thinking it's just going to work out because I have news for you? No, it's not. Some of you you know, some of you married men and women, you're working, you're both working paying jobs. Uh, we live, we live in two worlds when we work, when we got a family and when we work. I mean, you, we have a job and we have our family, but when we're at home, we're worried about our work. When we're at work, we're worried that we're not spending enough time with our families. So you log off or you go home and then we worry about work <laughs> when you should be worried or thinking about your family. And we find ourselves with our families and at times find ourselves silent or distracted for big blocks of time. And we live in these dual worlds, especially with our mobile devices that connect us to our work world of our emails and our messages and our texts and our Slack and all of the, the group conversations. And at some point, we've got to decide, what has God primarily called me to do? What is the primary vision, and are we willing to say No. No, no to a lot of good opportunities to make sure that we are successful in that thing that God has positioned and called us to do. What's stealing the limited amount of time that you have that should be given to the main things? And would you be willing to say to God, God, like Nehemiah, I just want my motto for the rest of this month or just for the next six months to be, I am doing a great work. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no to this. I'm going to say no to this. I'm going to say no to this because it's robbing. I cannot come down. And you know why this is so important to me as a pastor, especially an ADD pastor? Because if we as individuals don't get a hold of this, we as a church won't either. As a church leader, one of the biggest challenges that I face is working to get as clear as possible as to what, is God, what God is calling us specifically to do and then to relentlessly focus on that. Because as a church, our whole existence is about life change. But to do that, the opportunities and the strategies are endless. But God has only given us a certain amount of resources and a certain amount of time. And as hard as it can be for me to accept, we can only do a few things, maybe just one or two things, really, really well. And do them great. Or we can give in to the temptation to try and do more than we should and never achieve the vision. 
We need to become men and women who understand how to stay focused on a God-given vision for our individual lives personally. Men and women who increasingly don't let good opportunities or fear or criticism sidetrack us because if we can learn to pull that off individually, we can pull it off as a church. And that's why we've got to be men and women like Nehemiah that see what could and should be and what God wants to do in and through me and then stay focused on that. So may our battle cry for at least the rest of this month, if not longer, just be, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Let me pray for us. Father, I... I just ask for all of us that you would help us with this because this is all we know as a culture. We've been raised in it. We've grown up in it. We've, we've grown into further decades. So this is just all we know is to function at the speed and to just have everything around us. But Father, I, I pray for us and for the sake of the next generation, that you help us to get this right. God, I pray that you would help us through your spirit, through the people around us, to examine our lives, to examine what's in our lives, to examine all the little things that we give our time to, and that you would truly help us to see those through your eyes. As the author in Hebrews says, it challenges us, that you would help us to truly throw off anything that hinders sin that so easily entangles so that we could fix our eyes on Jesus and run with perseverance the race that you have marked out for us, not the world. We can't do it without your help. So, Father, I pray that you would give us that clarity, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and that through that we could evaluate what it is that you have called us to in this life that is most important for the people around us and that we would begin to let drop off all those little things that steal our time, our energy, our mental health, our joy, and especially in this horribly divisive, volatile culture and that we would see you do something unmistakable in our lives, in us and through us in the lives of others. And again, as we have the children with us in this room today, that, Father, we get it right as quick as possible, not just for our sake, but for theirs. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.